Good afternoon. Um, it is the 6th of March 2023. My goodness, how quickly the time goes. Just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson and Mark Anderson uh, from the United States. Now, we're going to kick off today with um, a headline from the Sunday Telegraph that a lot of people picked up on. On Sunday, they contacted me and I think they were stunned to see this very, very big uh, paper with this headline, The Lockdown Files, Hancock's Plan to Frighten the Pants Off the Public. And um, a pretty, uh, how do we describe that image, stark, a uh, little bit foreboding image that they've chosen to uh, um, highlight this uh, massive uh, piece of journalism from the Telegraph. But is this uh, so good as many people had hoped or is there something more behind it? Now, we've got a guest, uh, Dr. Christian Buckland, who will be joining us in just a few minutes. But before we bring him in, let's take you through this article and uh, have a look at the massive coverage. So the front page we've shown you, uh, this is the next two pages and we've got authors of Project Fear discussed when to deploy new COVID variant. Um, lots of very big um, glossy graphics here, which I don't think add to the gravitas of what's being reported, but we can talk about this a little bit more. An inset on the image, you can see just some of what the Telegraph claims are hundreds of thousands of WhatsApp messages. Um, but in this case, uh, between uh, Matt Hancock and Damon Poole. And I know you've been looking at some of these uh, messages, Mike. But if we go on to the next two pages, then we get Boris Johnson. Johnson branded shopping trolley over his swerves from lockdown skeptic to zealot. Uh, interestingly enough, there's some uh, WhatsApp messages from Boris Johnson. Uh, one is at the bottom uh, of the left-hand page. And that's quite interesting because Boris Johnson is accurately quoting statistics which suggest that COVID was not as dangerous as, be, as we were being told. And uh, embedded in the picture with Boris on the right of your screen, um, what, he's, what he's doing there is challenging what uh, he's being told. He says in one, is it possible that COVID is starting to run out of potential victims? Question mark. How can we possibly justify the continuing paralysis to control a disease that has a death rate of one in 2000? And then he says, if you're over 65, your risk of dying from COVID is probably as big as your risk of falling downstairs. And we don't stop older people from using stairs. What do you think? So it's interesting that the messages the Telegraph have uh, chosen are, are very mixed for all of the main players. Um, it goes on. Hancock accused Gove of making play for his job by promising to cut NHS wait times. Cummings regime was a nightmare, said Sunak. And uh, really, you've got to look carefully to start to see serious comment. I've come back to the the front page here, and we've got Isabel Oakshot herself. And uh, let's have a look at a little bit of what she says in this section. Uh, while Matt Hancock breezily discussed how to frighten the pants off everyone with a new strain, a boy called Mark was listening in deepening despair to the drumbeat towards another national lockdown grow louder. Almost exactly a year later, when most of the population had been vaccinated against COVID, but the Omicron variant prompted yet another fear campaign, 
He told his mother he was popping out to the shops and never returned. His body was found by dog walkers three days later, hanging from a tree. So Isabel Oakshop has the uh, lead journalist in breaking this story. Um, but here she is um, really pointing out the sheer horrors of what lockdown did to the lives of many people. And uh, I'll just reinforce her comments with this image from the Daily Mail or this article from the Daily Mail going back to the 4th of March 2021. Grandmother 66, who was terrified of infecting her family with COVID, killed herself by stepping in front of a train when she felt a little under the weather with a cold inquest hears. So uh, that's pretty explicit. Um, if we have a look at uh, the Telegraph article again, we find buried in this massive text commentary by Julia Hartley Brewer. And uh, what does she have to say? But why are they, she's talking about journalists, so intent on killing the messenger instead of focusing on the substance of the message? Is this professional envy at a rival scoop or because the lockdown files are not just damaging for the politicians that made COVID policy for two long years? Uh, the files also make very uncomfortable reading for the journalists who failed to challenge that policy all that time. The messages reveal that ministers and advisers made policy on the hoof with more concern for political expediency, their careers and newspaper headlines than any consideration of the scientific evidence. So it seems to me from reading this massive um, piece by the Telegraph, it's taken these particular two lady journalists to actually bring home the sheer horror and dangers and damage of what was done because the Telegraph doesn't appear to grip it in the other articles. But let's just have a look at this uh, short video clip of Julia Hartley Brewer talking to David Davis about the subject of the lockdown files. Obviously, these lockdown files we're just discussing uh, and so many of the revelations we've seen, I mean, the summary of it is really the government frighten the living daylights out. I think the phrase frighten the pants off us, as the words of Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, to get us to comply with lockdowns. They then kind of got stuck in this cycle of trying to uh, justify their actions, not get ahead of public opinion, not come out of lockdowns or be forced into lockdowns, even when it would appear Boris Johnson was apparently thinking he didn't want them. Well, on one day, the next day he would want them. I mean, and that loads of the decision making was not based on the science, as they kept claiming, Cap T, uh, Clap, but actually on on ego, uh, on, on reputation, on not wanting to look like you got things wrong before. People were forced, as we revelations in the front page today, uh, there was a you know scientific evidence that you didn't need to isolate for 14 days or 10 days. You could isolate for just five days. If you took a test every day, you could be out and about if you'd been in contact with someone who'd had COVID. Um, uh, but no, they decided not to take it down to five days uh, because that would imply that the government had been getting it wrong as opposed to acknowledging, yeah, oh, actually, it turns out the latest evidence is this. A, a total disregard for facts, for data, for scientific evidence in favour of protecting ego, reputation, furthering careers and, frankly, a load of willy-waving by a bunch of middle-aged men, David Davis. What do you make of those reports? Well, first off, I'm not surprised about the, the lack of scientific basis. We saw quite a lot of those early on. I mean, you you may remember, I mean, I wrote about it, um, Neil Ferguson's uh, forecasts were treated as facts when they weren't. They were fantasy, you know. Uh, uh, and all the way through this, there's been 
I'll be frank with you, Whitehall generally, not just Matt Hancock, Whitehall generally is really crap at handling science and technology. It's yeah. just no good at it, you know. Uh, and the Prime Minister today is announcing, has, has found it necessary to announce, you know, we're going to enlarge on our capability in science and technology because we're not much, you know, as a government, not just our government, any government in the last yeah. 50 years is poor at it. So you got that problem. Secondly, literally since March 23rd, uh, 2020, when we had the Coronavirus Emergency Act, we effectively crippled Parliament. Uh, we effectively gave all these powers to these ministers to, as you say, willy wave with them. Um, and uh, that was the outcome. In indeed, you may not know, in fact, nobody knows, I think, that I asked for um, the all of the data they gathered in terms of focus groups and opinion polls. The government back in 2020 spent more money than any pre previous government on opinion polls and focus groups. You have to wonder why. What were they doing? Well, my take on that is that a very, very serious subject undermined by the introduction of willy waving. And by the end of that little exchange between these two, even David Davis is having a little bit of a laugh and a guffaw. What was your take, Mike? Uh, I think uh, what we're seeing is an effort to uh, cover up what was a cooperation between the media and the government at the time for the, for the full two years. I think you were very generous by suggesting that these Two ladies uh, have, have, you know, helped to pull the lid off this because, of course, lot, several organisations, including the UK Column, Off Guardian, TCW, a, a bunch of others, were talking about this from day one, effectively, about what the government was doing. And correct me if I'm wrong, we highlighted the the spy B minutes in the first place. Uh, yeah. So that we knew in March 2021. Was it March 21 or yes. earlier yeah. than that, yes. that, that, that? That Project Fear was what was going on here. I was thought it was really interesting, though, the choice of the word deploy, uh, because, of course, they weren't deploying a virus. They were deploying a PR exercise, and they had the full complicity of the entire mainstream press uh, to do that. And there were not very many, uh, if any, uh, dissenting voices within the mainstream press at all. Uh, I, I agree with that. I've pulled out those two women because within the Telegraph piece, as far as I can see, they're the only people who get near the seriousness of what took place. Just to emphasise this, and, and uh, then we'll, we'll bring uh, Dr Christian Buckland on. This is the comment, comment, comment by the Telegraph. I want to say editorial, but it doesn't call itself an editorial. The chilling costs of Project Fear. So this is a sort of anonymous blurb. Um, by the Telegraph, but this really should be summing up and drawing people's attention to what's really going on. I assume it's written by Alistair Heath, who I believe is the uh, uh, editor of the Sunday Telegraph. Uh, this was a comment from Business Insider India uh, about his leadership, impressive team of reporters and editors focused on covering technology and startup, but they don't seem to be able to get near vaccines and vaccine damage. Uh, but this is what he said into that in that commentary in, in uh, the first paragraph and the last paragraph we'll cover. In March 2020, before the UK had entered lockdown, Professor Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, told a parliamentary committee I think it is easy to get a perception that if you are older and you get this virus, then you're a goner. Absolutely not. 
the great majority of people will recover sorry from this virus apologies from the typo there even if they are in their 80s so that was a pretty clear statement why did the telegraph lose track of that which they did over subsequent months and years and this was the uh, final uh, paragraph was this all ethical uh, what will be its longer term consequences? Should we be concerned about the willingness of ministers to employ such measures in different circumstances, particularly if once again the opposition decides to abandon its duty to scrutinise the government? Well, my reaction to that is, well, what about the Telegraph's ability to scrutinise the mm. government? So at that point, let's bring in Dr Christian Buckland. Uh, welcome to UK Column News this morning. And uh, Dr. Buckland, I know that you were contacted by many people over the weekend, also very, very concerned about this headline. How do you feel about it all? Uh, I've, I've got really mixed messages because, as you say, you know, we've, there's been lots of us talking out for a long time. And the, the UK column were the first people to um, highlight the Spy B um, document. And, and that, to me, is one of the most important things here is that the, the WhatsApp messages back up the spy B document to so the document where it says the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased amongst those who are complacent using heart hitting emotional messaging. So the WhatsApp messages prove the government did actually adopt the strategy. They didn't just simply have it as an option that was presented to them. And a point that I think is not being talked enough about is that using psychological pressure to change people's behaviours without their knowledge not only did all the harm that everyone is discussing, suicide rates, mental health problems, couldn't see loved ones dying, but it also invalidated everyone's ability to give consent to the COVID jab. Because when you start to look at some of the government documents, um, for example, on, on the government document, I've got it here, it says, consent must be obtained before starting any treatment and it goes on to state that this includes the administration of all vaccines. And then when you look at Public Health England's Green Book of Immunisation, it, it says for consent to immunisation to be valid, it must be given freely, voluntarily and without coercion. And so then you've got to look at the definition of coercion. And the Encyclopaedia Britannica states it's the threat or use of punitive measures against states, groups or individuals in order to, for them to undertake or desist from specified actions. And then it goes on to state, and those threats include psychological pressure and social ostracism. And I think this is really important because the, the WhatsApp messages combined with the Spy B document prove that the psychological pressure was applied to the public. And that means any consent to immunisation that was given, whether they asked you or didn't, if you agreed or didn't agree, but even if you agreed, it was not valid. So to me, one of the most important questions that is going to emerge from this WhatsApp um, issue is going to be one of accountability and liability for all the people who have been greatly injured or been left bereft because, because of the COVID vaccine, because they gave their consent for an injection um, that they couldn't give consent to. So there has to be some form of, I think, uh, accountability based on the fact that no one could give informed consent. Uh, Dr Buckland, thank you for that. Just to reinforce your point there, if we just pop this next slide on screen, this is the uh, 22nd of March 2020 uh, SPY-B uh, minutes, the minutes of their meeting. 
and uh, bottom left highlighted with the arrow you can see it's talking about persuasion the, per the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased amongst those who are complacent using hard-hitting emotional messaging to be effective this must also empower people by making clear that they can reduce the threat and then in the middle of the right hand page the very word you're mentioning coercion where it's it's talking about effectively turning communities on each other in order to enforce the the uh, lockdown laws and also warning we have to be careful doing this because the hint is this could lead to violence so your key point is that a Applied psychology is being used through the SPY B team and indeed other, other parts of the um, government um, in order to get people to make decisions which if they had free will, they possibly wouldn't make. This is the dangerous business, isn't it? The government is using applied psychology, which is manipulating people's ability to make a free will decision. That's ex ex exactly so. You know, one of the main ones is artificially inflating the fear levels that has resulted in people making decisions that they wouldn't have done if they weren't given erroneous information. So no one could conduct a risk assessment on certain things. And, that, and that's left people thinking, I won't go and see my dying relative because I don't want to make things worse or I don't want to get ill. And so they're then left with all these feelings of shame and guilt and, and, and talking of sort of shame and guilt in that spy B document. There is also the use of social disapproval in there. And that then falls under when we're talking about coercion for um, vaccination. The social ostracism comes there because what was happening were people were being shamed into changing their behaviours. So if you didn't comply with certain things, you were, you were demonised, othered. And so all of these things create a bigger, bigger issue. It's not just about the damaging effects that we have all been talking about in March 2020 and onwards. It's about what has happened to the people who have been, who should not have taken a vaccine because their risk profile meant that they were actually at greater risk from, uh, from, from receiving this rather than if they got COVID. What's happened to those people who are now left injured or have died as a result of the vaccine? That to me is, is, is the bit that needs to be linked into these WhatsApp messages. There is a, a strong link here. Okay, thank you for that. Well, that was uh, one of my observations of the Telegraph article that it was all about lockdown. There was nothing about the uh, uh, coercion used to get people vaccinated. And of course, the, uh, the deaths and the suffering of those vaccines, which have clearly been recorded, so the Telegraph didn't want to go near those. Just a, a final question, if I may. You, you, I believe, have been contacted by other media outlets um, are you detecting that we now have journalists, I'll use the word mainstream, uh, big, bigger journalists than the UK column. I, have you got journalists who are now uh, questioning you on what the government was really up to? Are we starting to see journalists um, express concerns about the whole of the process? I, I, I've had a few people call me, but nothing from the mainstream, the real sort of mainstream areas. And I think that that may change because now it's becoming a approved topic that we can talk about. This is the whole issue: is we're okay to um, do certain things, or the, the you know those WhatsApp messages show the link between the media and the government. You know, when Matt Hancock asks for a favour from certain media, 
So they have been hand in hand all the time amplifying. So it does make you have to ask the question, why now? Why is it now that the media are starting to talk about this? Is there another agenda at play? I don't know, but I definitely think it's a, it's a question we have to ask. We have to look at exactly what we've got, and we've got to be glad that finally we've got some, some sense of um, recognition of what we were saying was true. But we also have to ask, why is this being released now? And why are certain journalists and certain more mainstream areas actually starting to pick up on it? Is this a controlled release? I don't know, but it's questions that we need to be asking. OK, uh, Dr Buckland, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, we hope to do more on this with you in the coming days because it's such an important subject. So I'm going to say thank you for joining us this morning uh, and or this afternoon even. I'll, I'll say to viewers, if you have a look on the UK Column website, uh, you can find uh, material that we've previously written, uh, including interviews that we've done with Dr Christian Buckland on the subject of what we've called the government psychological attack on the public. So um, pretty incredible stuff. I think the agenda is to focus attention on lockdown. That's the issue. And I think the aim is to drift people's uh, awareness away from the vaccination issue. That's what I think. But in the meantime, Alex, uh, local councils continuing to use applied psychology to nudge people in the direction they are hoping they'll go. And that is the key issue here, Mike. It's a local or municipal council. And just as in the first wave of uh, the use of nudging a decade ago, Britain seeded out the idea first to its closest continental European neighbours, uh, then to its Commonwealth, particularly Five Eyes partners, uh, and then to other countries further afield. So we may be seeing the same now. So if you're watching in a European or English speaking country, <clears throat> it may be time to check whether this is happening in your municipality. The local government association uh, tweeted this out at the end of January. That is the umbrella organization of the local councils in Britain. They have uh, a whole podcast called Nudges for Social Good. <clears throat> and they're quoting here Wirral Council, two people from uh, the Wirral. Uh, for our overseas viewers, it's a fairly representative slice of Middle England. It's the thumb of land that juts out between North Wales and Liverpool. And it has a good mix of working class and middle class people in it. So it's uh, really Middle England in miniature. Uh, this was brought to our attention by this uh, reply uh, from one of our regular viewers. Have I misunderstood or is local government now tweaking citizens' behaviour by deploying nudges, coercion, if you understand what Dr Buckland has just said? If so, is this behaviour acceptable by those who are only elected to provide public services? They're not God. They're there to provide public services. Very important point. There is the podcast in question. It will be in the show notes, as everything that we talk about is after a few hours after upload. So it's episode 16 of the Behavioural Insights podcast called Nudges for Social Good. So not the whole podcast series, uh, I think, is, is called Nudges for Social Good, just this episode. So that was a mistake by the uh, local government association there. Nicola Jones and Rory McGill of Wirral Council, which they have contrived to misspell, discuss their behavioural insights trial working with the public? No. Community champions. That would be the pushiest people in your local area, self-appointed during the COVID-19 pandemic. And they've gone to the trouble of transcribing what was said so people can freeze this to read it in full. Uh, but here is what Nicola Jones, one of the two members of Wirral Council, uh, who's, who's interviewed here, says. We've got the community champions. So we've got over 600 local residents signed up to be that conduit 
to getting those key messages out. So we're using the community volunteer and faith sector, this would be your local place of worship, to get some of those key messages out. A bit like Rick Warren with his purpose-driven, well, it's more than a church, it's a whole nation now in Rwanda, and he used this, this technique explicitly, saying that churches can reach areas that the government can't and be trusted by more people. And that's picked up by Nicola Jones in the very different social context of Cheshire. Uh, she says well, people will trust the churches and volunteer groups more than statutory agencies. And in a second extract of this transcript, we can see that the same lady, Nicola Jones, says, we have a team of over 40 community connectors who are employed not by the council, that would raise suspicions, but by a local charity, or as they call them these days, third sector organisation in the Wirral. And they've been uh, in direct contact and have been engaging with the public and saying, well, when you've been contacted by Britain's flagship policy, Test and Trace, a, a famous white elephant, have you adhered to that? Are you following the guidance? This is absolutely the co-opting of local bullies and local uh, uh, queen bees, isn't it? To get others to do what they are socially supposed to do, Brian? Yes, absolutely. And this is a key thing, Alex, that the word nudge uh, I, I dislike because it is applied psychology, malicious psychology that's going on, uh, but it's going on at all levels. It's not just up in Westminster or through the civil services, right down at local level now, and it's being used to uh, prevent people from making proper cognitive decisions. We will do more on this, but uh, let's uh, move subject and we'll say simply that if the British government's prepared, was prepared to lie over the whole of the lockdown uh, rules and regulations, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that they're lying about the war in Ukraine. And just a, a very quick comment here that uh, still we see nothing of any substance in the BBC or from the Ministry of Defence in UK about the sheer scale of the fighting now in Ukraine. And uh, Bakhmud they do not want to talk about because we have an encirclement now with um, uh, Ukrainian troops being killed in their thousands, but confusion in the city because it's clear that some Ukrainian units are trying to pull out of their own accord. Others are being sent into the Bakhmut encirclement. Uh, and uh, what Ukrainians have themselves said is that the irony is that they've got experienced troops being pulled out. They're being saved for another day, but inexperienced uh, newcom newcomer troops uh, many of them trained in UK, are being forced into the city uh, where they're being killed by the shelling. Uh, we don't know how many troops are in Bakhmut, but we have estimates of between seven and 20,000. So this is major conflict and it's, it's the death and destruction is truly horrific. Um, the Ukrainians are now in a very dangerous position because the Russians have fire control. They can shell all of the roads in and out of Bakhmut. And the main roads that are left, I, I don't mean main tarmac road, I mean the only roads that the uh, Ukrainians have got left are these muddy tracks. Um, and the, at the moment, the ground is very soft and there's huge problems getting wheeled vehicles in and out and even track vehicles are, are getting stuck. Um, but what's going on in UK? Well, the Ministry of Defence is congratulating itself. It's training more raw recruits giving them the basic training, they're being sent back to the front line where they're being killed by Russian shelling. And the casualties in Bakhmut alone are estimated at between 500 and 800 a day, particularly when there's intense fighting. 
Uh, but of course, the Ministry of Defence is just happy that uh, it can boast its training Ukrainian troops. Uh, Alex, I, I know you've got contacts in Ukraine. I find this obscene that the British government would not tell the population the truth about the carnage and continue to feed young men into what is clearly a meat grinder. And I make no apologies for using that expression. It remains something which Ukrainians in civilian life away from the frontline areas do not talk about, certainly not to foreigners and even well, I'm not a close friend of very many, but those in my uh, who are in my network, they're not talking about it as far as I can see uh, among themselves. No doubt this is not least because of this fierce censorship that there is uh, within Ukraine. Uh, you can be put away for a long time or suffer undue punishments for, uh, uh, for demoralizing the country. Uh, but it does seem to be something that's coming back anecdotally to Ukrainian civvy street. Uh, by means of uh, people making recordings from the front lines. We have played a couple uh, over the months saying our life expectancy here is not very long. And the, uh, the urgent and impassioned tone of these recordings from the front line saying we're all being fed into the meat grinder suggests to me that they know at the front line that that uh, consciousness is not trickling back to those who are still in the country, less still those who have fled, which is many, many millions now. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, well, let's uh, move on to the issue of uh, aircraft. And well, NBC News uh, a couple of days ago uh, published this. This was an exclusive for them. Two Ukrainian pilots are in the US for training assessments on attack aircraft, including F-16s. Now, this follows on from uh, comments by uh, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, uh, Colin Cal, who was speaking at a congressional hearing last week and said that uh, the Biden administration had not made any new decisions uh, with respect to supplying F-16s to uh, Ukraine, uh, but that the US has not started training on F-16s. Well, clearly not, because these people are on simulators only at this point, according to NBC. Two Ukrainian pilots are in the US undergoing an assessment to determine how long it would take to train them to fly attack aircraft, including F-16 fighter jets, according to two congressional officials and a senior US official. The Ukrainian skills are being evaluated on simulators at a U.S. military base in Tucson, Arizona, the officials said, and they may soon be joined by more of their fellow pilots. Well, this is going nowhere in a hurry, Brian. I think you'd agree. And uh, it looks to me like it's just another PR exercise. This will placate the Ukrainians for a while, get a few guys over, get them on the simulators. And it gives Zelensky the opportunity to keep the war going because he can keep saying to his is uh, troops, well, we've got to hang in there. We've got to keep fighting because we are going to be given these aircraft. But if you read the reports, uh, reports across the board in UK and, and, and the US are increasingly pessimistic about any aircraft ever appearing to Ukraine. Yes. Uh, in the meantime, we need to keep pressure on Russia. And we do that by flying around uh, in Estonia, amongst other places. Uh, so here's a tweet. Uh, from the uh, Royal Air Force. Now, this is going back to 2020 because, of course, uh, UK has been operational in, uh, or at least the RAF has been operational in Estonia since 2017. I'm just using this to illustrate the, the new news, which is that the Royal Air Force and the German Air Force, uh, their Typhoon jets will be flying joint air police missions in Estonia for the first time. Uh, as the UK prepares to lead NATO's mission in Estonia. So the government's saying these integrated missions will be the first of their kind with the eventual aim of carrying out full joint and integrated NATO air police missions in the near future. Around 300 RAF personnel from the 140 Expeditionary Air Wing will soon be in Estonia as the RAF prepares to lead the long-established NATO air policing mission 
from the German Air Force in four months. Uh, to operate successfully side by side, personnel with the two Air Forces have trained together to understand each other's processes, including maintenance and operating procedures. Uh, here's what Ben Wallace had to say about it. Uh, he said, our RAF personnel are in Estonia are undertaking a vital role ensuring the security of Europe's skies and bolstering NATO's presence in Eastern Europe. Uh, joint operations of this kind demonstrate the strength and unity of the NATO alliance and our shared resolve to maintain peace and security across the region. But Alex, this seems to be something slightly different because, of course, Britain and Germany have been flying uh, in NATO exercises, joint operations for a very long time. So this seems to be something different. And we get a hint that, that perhaps outside this or on the periphery of, of NATO, we're getting these very close uh, bilateral and trilateral arrangements being set up. I'm not quite sure exactly why this would be being presented in such a strong way as being something unique and new? Well, given our experience, Mike, of how these press releases and these Twitter campaigns go, uh, that probably is because it is being used as a trailblazer, as a softener up for what's to follow. Could it be that the Luftwaffe has an integrated command with the Royal Air Force at some stage, at least in the pretext of forward operation towards theatre and then uh, being backcast uh, towards the homeland? Uh, this is not beyond the, the realm of possibility, given how we have seen land and marine forces integrating between Britain and EU member states in the framework of PESCO and all the frippery around the, uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, edge of that envelope. So I, I, I wouldn't rule that out. As We do have a forthcoming uh, Eastern Approaches podcast already recorded, but not up on the website yet. Uh, about that, uh, talk, well, not about the military issue, but uh, asking uh, somebody who works in Estonian public broadcasting, actually, a British expatriate, what it's like in that country. People will be in for a few surprises listening to that. He does go into detail on the land forces British contingent there. So that should be up within the next week or two. Um, if I may, I'll just add into that. I, I also suspect that when they were putting the aircraft into Estonia and elsewhere, they thought at that time they were going to be able to introduce a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and that has subsequently uh, been proven to be impossible, and uh, which makes the provision of F-16s ridiculous because the, the uh, Russians control the airspace. But at that time, the hope was the policing mission would turn into a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine where the West hoped to control the battlefield. Um, so, Alex, just keeping in mind what you just said, then let's bring this image on screen because this is Alex Chalk, uh, MP, uh, Minister for Defence Procurement. Uh, he was joined, uh, he went to Milan to discuss ongoing cooperation uh, on various uh, flight programmes, a joint venture between UK, Germany, Spain, Italy under the governance of NATO. So this is about existing uh, Eurofighter export campaigns and ongoing investment in the aircraft to further increase the military capability in coming years is how they describe it. But but again, we see these these sort of links, which which many people would assume are already there, but something else seems to be being constructed. I think we're just going to have to wait and see what it is that's constructed. Um, look at the land forces first. That seems to be where the action is usually uh, piloted, to, no, no pun intended. Um, it could be that there's something equivalent to an integrated battalion in due course. Um, but it's it's a problem in search of an enemy, isn't it? It's uh, it's, it's a, 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 an integration seeking a, a, a map on uh, or a part of the map that needs its presence. And we actually have a full house of British defence ministers today. We have featured the Secretary of State for Defence himself, Ben Wallace. We've just had understudy one, 
being mentioned, Alex Chalk, Member of Parliament for Cheltenham, where GCHQ is also housed. And now we have another of the junior defence ministers. So in other countries, this would be called an undersecretary. And that's Tobias Elwood, uh, well known to UK column viewers uh, from and readers of our articles uh, for his what we now call unlawful deployment of 77 Brigade. Uh, and Elwood is in fact spying on his own people, including his own voters, his constituents in Cheltenham, by uh, having both hats on at once, being a, a member of the government, member of parliament, and a, a member of 77 Brigade, an officer of that brigade. Uh, but we're going to see a three minutes clip of the redoubtable George Galloway, of Galloway a veteran anti-war campaigner, appearing for the motion at the Oxford Union. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago. That's the Student Debating Society at the University of Oxford. Uh, the debate was actually uh, a, 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 in memory, uh, in commemoration uh, of the 90th anniversary uh, of the 1933 debate in which the Oxford students shocked the world by voting in favour of the motion that this house would not die for king and government, his majesty's government. Of course, Elwood was uh, brought to the Oxford Union to plead that one still should bleed on command for politicians acting as the crown. Uh, but Galloway, in a typical fine fettle here, in the middle of his speech, is pointing out with personal reasons why one shouldn't die for king and country, uh, because that's in practice dying for Elwood. So let's turn to country. Who is the country? What is the country? Who are you going to fight for? Rishi Sunak? <laughs> you. You upbraided the lack of height of my colleague. Have you seen Rishi Sunak? <laughs> in fact, if you, if you put Zelensky on Sunak's shoulders, you still wouldn't even get a Napoleon. These are small men. Are you really going to follow? Give them a blank check. Yes, I'll fight for you, Rishi Sunak. You only have to roll the name or his predecessor. What was our name? <laughs> Liz Truss. Are you telling me that if Liz Truss said you had to go to war and die, you'd do it because she was the Prime Minister? Tony Blair? Tony Blair, yes, I knew you were an I knew you were an idiot from the sunglasses that you are wearing. Tony Blair, anyone? Tony Blair, anyone who caused the death of a million people and counting who cascaded fanatic Islamist extremism around the world, you called them spores the murder cult of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the head-chopping throat-cutters, the million dead Iraqis, and you want to do it all again by signing a blank check to Tobias Elwood? He told you, did you notice the word that he, the caveat that he slipped in for you? There's no conscription yet, he said. Did you notice it? He was on television less than two weeks ago calling for martial law to be introduced in this country. In which case, I saw your lips move on Sky News. I saw your lips move on Sky News. And if we had martial law, 
we wouldn't be having this debate. And it might not be long before you can take off your fur hat and put on a tin one and go off to fight and die on the question of whether Kupiansk is on one side of a line when it's been in four different countries in the last hundred years. You ready to die for that? Because I'm not. Mr. Elwood didn't like it up him, to use the phrase. Uh, he was contesting there, for those listening in audio only, that he had ever called for martial law. But Galloway, of course, managed to recall which programme it was that Elwood had said that on. Britain is not the only Western European country now hinting with various degrees of veiling in the hint that there may at some point be conscription. There's uh, rumblings about that from Canada, from Poland, uh, from Norway and the Netherlands, coming to us from various unofficial sources. And I wouldn't put, put it past NATO to have had some kind of communique or getting their heads together in private on this matter. Mm. Yeah, well, um, an, excellent, uh, an excellent speech by Mr. Galloway. And of course, what was he doing? He was simply um, exposing the realities of who runs the country. Uh, and I have no problem saying that I, I spent 21 years in the military. Would I have served in that way if I really had known at that stage the sheer corruption um, within our government and uh, establishment system, the, the corruption, the lies, the cheating, the criminality, the child abuse? Would I have gone and died for those people had I known? The answer's got to be no. And I think there's many other people who would agree with that statement. OK, uh, Friday was the anniversary of the poisoning of the Skripals. Uh, and, well, the Russians have uh, decided to publish uh, a statement on this. Um, so here we are, Salisbury, five years of unanswered questions. This is from the Russian embassy in London. Let's just look at the first paragraph. Five years ago on 4th of March 2018, Sergei and Yulia Skripal were reportedly poisoned with a nerve agent in Salisbury, Wiltshire. The UK government has accused the Russian state of being responsible for the poisoning. Russia has denied any involvement. The, inc the incident has caused major international repercussions, severely undermining uh, Russia-UK and Russia-West relations and becoming one of the initial elements of a massive and orchestrated campaign aimed at discrediting our country. Yet details of what actually happened remain unclear and there are no credible explanations in sight. Now, I'm going to say it's come from the Russians, but I think everybody should have a read of that document. It's, it's uh, freely available. Uh, here's what uh, Maria Zakharova had to say. Up until now, the UK has been unable to provide any reliable information on the Skripal case. At the same time, the UK uh, leaders unashamedly continue using it in their large-scale anti-Russia propaganda campaign. Um, Alex, uh, very briefly, um, do you think that uh, Maria Zakharova is being... Uh, unfair in that statement? No. Where is the reliable information? It's as simple as that. If there is reliable information, let's have it in a sentence or a paragraph. It hasn't been produced. Indeed. So uh, just want to highlight a couple of articles on the UK Column website on this. One from Alex uh, here, uh, Skripal, a Russian web or a Russi web. Uh, some contours relevant to understanding the possible roles of certain British intelligence officers in the Skripal case. Do have a look at that. We should not forget, by the way, uh, that uh, Port and Down never denied uh, manufacturing Novichok themselves, although we would question whether there was any actual deployment of Novichok in the wild uh, under this. Uh, another article on the UK Column website, uh, the day of the Skripal, 
by Tim Norman, uh, published just last November. This shows a timeline of the mainstream media coverage uh, of this event. And uh, I, it is a long article, but it's worth working your way through because uh, it probably raises more questions uh, than it answers. In fact, it definitely raises more questions than it answers because it absolutely shows the holes in the mainstream media narrative. Uh, but if you want to see our coverage over the years, just search for Scribal on the UK Column website, use the search box uh, to do that. I just want to highlight uh, one comment uh, from Dame Sally Davies. We've shown this many times, but it's just worth reminding ourselves. This was the chief medical officer, the equivalent of Chris Whitty, uh, when she was uh, chief medical officer in 2018. And Brian, I mean, the statement is ridiculous. My advice for any individual, wash your clothes and wipe down any personal items, shoes and bags with cleansing or baby wipes before disposing of them in the usual way. This was her advice if people suspected they had come into contact with Novichok. And my question, our question from the beginning, Brian, was how can anybody with any kind of scientific or medical uh, qualifications make the claim that cleansing wipes or baby wipes were going to deal with it? Well, it was complete and utter nonsense. And uh, certainly any military people that have been through biological chemical warfare training, um, well, I've done it myself. And you look at what that lady says, she's simply not credible. But for her to make this wild claim, she's actually using psychology on the the mindset of the nation. There were many parallels with what happened with Skripal, the Skripal affair and what then subsequently happened with COVID-19. Uh, but uh, although we were, uh, the UK column was once again speaking out against this narrative, there were a couple of voices in the mainstream at the time that were also speaking out. So this was uh, Seamus Martin in the Irish Times. Unlikely that Vladimir Putin behind the Skripal poisoning attack would, well, we can, you can read that one for yourself. Uh, and then this was uh, a German uh, article along the same kind of lines. Uh, whether Russia wanted to kill Skripal is highly questionable. But there is one question that still is outstanding, and that is, where are the Skripals? Because they disappeared. They've never been seen or heard of since. We have never heard from them personally what happened, um, and I don't think we ever will. Uh, no, because uh, they were clearly actors in a very high-level game for the British government. Um, okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Um, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, but please do share material you find on the various platforms. Okay, and a quick uh, advert at one o'clock on this coming Thursday, we're going to stream out my interview with Moira Dundee, really amazing lady talking about what happened to her when she started to challenge lockdown north of the border in Scotland. So uh, look out for that video. And I do hope you'll watch because it's particularly pertinent this week with this, uh, um, well, I'll call it exposure. Let's be optimistic where we've got an exposure on the, the whole of the scam of lockdown. But hear Moira talk, talk about what happened to her when she started to challenge that lockdown in Scotland. And uh, also an advert here for AV13, Sunday, the 22nd of October, 2023. This is going to be at the Leonardo Hotel in Milton Keynes. The, so a real physical event. It's a real physical event. It's one day. This is to help get uh, Alternative View kickstarted again. Um, Thomas Sheridan has kindly agreed to act as guest host. 
Um, so I am going to be speaking. I will have a few words to say, but I'm delighted that Thomas Sheridan is taking up the baton to help AV uh, get back to its true weekend form. Um, but an important thing to say to people is that if you need accommodation that is not included with any of the tickets for this one day event and you will need to make your own calls uh, to sort out hotel accommodation, whether it's at the Leonardo or elsewhere. And also, um, we're going to alert people that um, the 22nd of April, um, there will be an AV live stream, which the UK column will help to facilitate. And the subject for that is smart cities and the surveillance agenda. And I understand there'll be four speakers and we'll tell you more about those speakers in due course. But the important thing is that if you want to see Alternative View get back up to its, its true capacity, and that was an audience of close to 500 um, at the hotel venues um, just prior to uh, lockdown, if you want to help AV get up to that level, then please support the one day event, which is going to be a major Kickstarter for the AV team. I understand tickets are selling well for that, so you may want to uh, get, get in, in there. there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now, last week we were talking about the uh, supermarkets claiming f uh, food shortages and so on. We gave some comment on that last week, but I wanted to highlight the issue of uh, sort of the industrialization of farming and the shutting down of small farms in particular, not just in the UK. So here we have sustain. Uh, imagine the death of UK farms. Imagine the impact. Most of English lowland farmed by a few, a handful of big agribusiness, uh, the Tescoization of farming. Uh, and if you think no one uh, could farm the whole of England, just consider the largest farm recently sold in Australia, 77,300 square kilometres, about half the size of England. Such a loss of farms would accelerate a trend. In England, farm numbers have uh, been in dramatic decline this century, as smaller farm businesses struggle to survive in a more globalised market, which fails to pay for the sort of uh, for any sort of decent livelihood. And, you know, one thing that we know from people that are speaking to us is that uh, the younger generation aren't uh, inheriting their family farms. Uh, they're not coming, they're not sticking in farming. They're getting into other careers. Uh, and so farms are being sold to these larger uh, agribusinesses. Uh, let's have a look at this one. Uh, OFC debate finds decline in family farm uh, far from exaggerated. So this is Farmers, Week Farmers Weekly again. According to Ulster farmer uh, John McAllister, 110,000 smaller family farms have been lost in the UK since 1990 with a 35% decline between 2005 and 2016. And he quoted, he's quoted as saying, the campaign to protect rural England has warned that if current trends continue, smaller family farms could all but disappear by the middle of the century. So that's the UK. What's going on in the EU? Well, here is uh, farms and farmland in the European Union statistics. Uh, and this is saying that uh, uh, between 20, 2005 and 2020, the EU lost 5.5 million farms, 37% of its farms. Uh, the, using 2020 statistics, uh, there were three main groups of farms, uh, semi-subsistence farms, small and medium-sized farms, and large agricultural enterprises and cooperatives. Um, so of the EU's 9.1 million farms in 2020, the biggest 3.3% produced 56.4% of the food, and the remaining 96.7% of farms produced 43.6% of the food. If we go to the United States, uh, this is uh, USDA, uh, and this is saying that uh, 
as of 2021, of the 2.1 million remaining US farms, 5.3% uh, of the total produced 63.8% of the total output, 10.9% of the total produced 82.3% of the total output. So the point here is that, that mo the vast majority of the output from farming is in the hands of a very few. Let's look at Ukraine. Uh, here is the Oakland Institute War and Theft, the takeover of Ukraine's agricultural land. Uh, and they're saying that uh, this is a, this is from February 2023, February 21st, uh, and they're saying that the land takeovers uh, that are taking have been taking place in Ukraine. It's all going to oligarchs and big agri businesses, big organisations. Sorry, just put this one back on screen a second, Stephanie, please. Uh, so they're saying that uh, you know the likes of Goldman Sachs owned NN Investment Partner Holdings. Uh, are buying up huge quantities, U.S. pension funds, NCH capital. Uh, so Ukraine is 33 million hectares, uh, which is, uh, uh, sorry, and the bulk of those of that is for large-scale agriculture, with 3 million he hectares in the hands of just 12 large agribusiness uh, organizations. So, you know, my point is, if we're losing farmland as a result of Green New Deal, we're also seeing farmland being moved into these huge multinational corporate uh, interests and the control of our food supply is being handed over to a very few. And, and I'll just add this one. We're talking about the land here and farming, but of course for fishing, we've had for some time supermarket chains buying the fishing quotas. So technically the supermarket owns the fish before they've been fished out of the sea. So it's happening on land, it's happening on sea. It's orchestrated global globalist policy. Absolutely. So now if you didn't see the, uh, the attack on food symposium, the Children's Health Defence were running at the weekend, it's still available to watch uh, on chd.tv. Go and have a look at it um, if you're interested in that, but I would recommend you do. Okay, I think you've got one on the coronation as a lead into Alex. Yes, uh, well, I just wanted to mention this because the government was very proud uh, to announce that they've set up this new website for the coronation of His Majesty the King and Her Majesty the Queen Consort. Uh, and they're asking anybody that's hosting a coronation event uh, to add their event to their map. So, uh, you know, I'm sure lots of people would want to add events to that map, I've no <laughs> doubt. Uh, but Alex, uh, let's move on to the issue of the coronation oath. I've become aware of a petition on change.org by Neville Martin. I know people often groan in our audience when we mention petitions, particularly on the mainstream platforms, but they are in many cases, we did a whole segment on this last time I was on, they're in many cases the only way to bring our legislators to any kind of account and to bring matters to public notice. Uh, this one, when I screenshotted it quite a while ago now, only had 37 signatures. Uh, I do hope it has a multiple an order of magnitude more than that in due course. The petition is to amend the King's Coronation Oath. And the rationale given by Neville Martin is that the Coronation Oath Act of 1688, you'll recall when I was on last, I pointed out that Churchill admitted to Parliament at the beginning of the last reign that that wording had been flouted most of the coronations since George I. But that oath, which is a statutory cornerstone of our constitution, binds the King to rule according to law agreed in Parliament. Now, there's a question about what the, the form of the words, because statutes aren't mentioned by in most reigns, such as by the Queen. But anyway, considering the inclination of recent parliaments to adopt increasingly reactionary totalitarian political policies and to do so without effective parliamentary opposition, such an oath will not meet the approval of His Majesty's subjects. 
So to meet the expectations of the people, the coronation oath must reassert, restore and uphold the God-given constitutional liberties and rights of the people under common law, which the people have held since time immemorial, I would add since before we had kings, but which have been denied by recent governments. This will reinforce the authority of the people over parliaments, because, of course, that latter half of the last millennium was all the struggle of parliament for sovereignty over the, the crown, supremacy over the crown. But what about the people? They're supreme over parliament. Uh, that's something that parliamentarians increasingly hate to hear. And they seem to have pulled out many tricks, uh, even at the level of royal assent uh, since 1854, to obfuscate that. They seem to have recreated since 1688 this idea uh, that the, the sovereign is who we say he is in parliament. But no, you know, as, as William Pitt said back in 1770 in the King's speech, uh, or the, the King's speech debate, uh, we didn't get rid of the absolute rule of kings just to have the divine right of a bunch of them. Instead, we'll put on screen for a couple of seconds uh, the last bit, last bit, the abject failure of successive parliaments to weigh impacts of harmful policies uh, hatched in foreign lands by utopian despots, good wording there, uh, has had great uh, noxious effects. The coronation oath this time may be the last opportunity for a generation to reassert the constitutional rights of the people under common law. Failure to do so will in result in increasing numbers of His Majesty's subjects to question the authenticity of a monarch which is inextricably tied to the political whims of Westminster to politicians. We could now say Davos machinations as well. And if people want to freeze the screen at this point, they can read the entire justification uh, which has been put together uh, in the background for this oath. You can see that William Keats, Neil Oliver, Richard Vobes, and many other good men have been involved in the thinking here. That thinking is going on very much in full, at full tempo in the background petitioning various people up to the Earl Marshal, the organiser of the coronation, for a right wording of the coronation oath. Uh, Alex, thank you very much for that. An, an excellent lead-in to a globalist organisation that seems to be intent on stealing sovereignty, and that's the World Health Organisation. Uh, so let's bring in Mark Anderson, because you've been uh, staying on the case, on the trail of uh, what the World Health Organisation is up to. Welcome to UK Column News. Uh, great, guys. Um, after the last couple of weeks reports that I've given on the WHO and the possible threat to U.S. sovereignty and other national sovereignties due to the pandemic treaty that's taking place, UK Column got some feedback from some viewers. And that feedback was, hold it, you guys are overstating the case that the, the WHO is not a threat to U.S. sovereignty. Well, I've looked into this and quite honestly, I beg to differ, but it's it's not a real simple thing but we can kind of breeze through these slides uh, fairly quickly and I'll establish the case as to why this is very problematic. Anyway, one article that I was sent is by Susan Guest here and it's a Substack article. Dial back the panic, the headline says, the who cannot steal our sovereignty or subsume our constitution, here's why. She's an American writer. And she notes in here in the bottom of that first paragraph, it is without question that we are absolutely a world on edge and poised to be engulfed in literal digital in a literal digital gulag to include health passports, central bank digital currencies, social credit scores. But I think we need to dial back the panic on this one just a bit, she says. And I'm thinking, so you're you're aware of all those threats and you're saying we should dial back the panic. Well, granted, we don't want to get into actual panic, but it, it's a strange statement to make. Uh, this writer is saying there are uh, clear and present threats to personal and national sovereignty, uh, clear, and, uh, clear and present dangers to personal choice. But don't worry so much. 
the writer Susan Guest is saying here. And uh, this is, it strikes me as many WHO apologists coming out of the woodwork, uh, and it's eerily similar to the fact checkers uh, regarding COVID and things like that. Uh, you know, saying you guys, you're overstating the case and whatnot. And that's particularly ironic right now, given what you guys reported earlier, that the media is finally coming around and admitting, uh, at least some of them, that they've botched the whole COVID thing from the very beginning. Anyway, just moving on kind of quickly, the next slide here. Uh, this is Peggy Hall. She's another of uh, what I would call WHO apologists trying to say there's nothing to worry about regarding threats to national sovereignty from the pandemic treaty. And I just wanted to show who she was. Uh, moving on from there uh, to the next slide. Uh, this is some of the things, four things you need to know about the WHO. This is from Peggy Hall. Uh, one, the current rules have existed since 2005. That's the international health regulations. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Number two, the proposed changes do not give away US sovereignty to the WHO, forgiving them for misspelling sovereignty. Number three, international law governs rules between countries, not sovereignty, which is sort of a fuzzy statement. And get this one, number four, the, the WHO is already calling the shots. Well, if the WHO is already calling the shots, how can sovereignty be altogether safe? And so that's a very odd statement. Uh, getting back to Susan Guest's comments here, you read the middle part. Treaties and other international agreements are written agreements between sovereign states or between states and international organizations governed by international law. Well, between states and uh, international organizations means like, for instance, between all these different states and the WHO or uh, various states being members of the United Nations itself. And we got to remember the WHO is a branch of the United Nations system. And I've written down some very pertinent notes here. Uh, the U.N. system was seeded with Rockefeller money back in the 1940s for the express purpose of diluting U.S. sovereignty, and it's highly problematic. Um, anyway, the, the, UN, the U.N.'s uh, outlook is based on legal positivism. Uh, it's a legal theory that basically separates law and morality. And that directly contradicts natural law, by the way. Hence, the idea ideas in the UN Charter, the UN Convention on Civil and Political Rights, and of course the pandemic treaty could hardly be an exception. The idea that uh, sovereignty and human rights are negotiable and malleable and revocable. This is a constant cardinal feature of all UN documents under legal positivist theory, I might add. Uh, plus the UN, and this is really key, the UN already destroyed U.S. sovereignty with regards to the congressional prerogative of declaring war under the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. has not declared a war since World War II. Why? Because we fought a U.N. war in Korea that ended 70 years ago this year. So I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a broad picture here, but with the WHO being part of the U.N. system, and then you look at the U.N. system itself in terms of its legal theory, in terms of what it did to obliterate the idea that the U.S. can declare a war through the people's representatives in Congress. When you look at all that, you see what a problem it is to even belong to the WHO or the U.N., much less get involved in a WHO pandemic treaty. See, this is the thing these WHO apologists just don't want to touch if they're even capable of getting into it, quite honestly. Um, so, um, yeah, moving on from there. Uh, 
we're looking at the report of the review committee regarding amendments to the international health regulations. Uh, those IHR regs were first created in 1969. Uh, they were updated in 2005, and they're being updated now. And uh, I'll mention here before I might invite you guys as a counter comment um, that we've got, uh, you know, we can go one more slide here at least. We got digital information and data protection. Uh, this, uh, this is a big concern, digital health certificates on route to financial perks or penalties, depending on whether you're a dissenter, uh, you know, things like that regarding the COVID jabs. And that, that, of course, would feed into future pandemics. I discussed that last week. The H5N1 bird flu is actually being floated as possibly becoming more serious than COVID-19. That would provide the rationale for future crackdowns, future lockdowns. So uh, at this point, um, uh, I would only comment maybe before I invite you guys' comments, and we'll get into some more slides in a minute. I would comment that James Roguski, who's got a guest item on the UK Column website, he's that uh, WHO pandemic treaty and IHR analyst based in Los Angeles, California. And what he's saying is that another thing to keep in mind is the international health regulations being developed alongside the pandemic treaty, which is all going on right now, um, have a life of their own. And uh, even if the pan pandemic treaty uh, through, throws bouquets to the ideas of sovereignty, even if the language of the pandemic treaty seems to honor or give sufficient regard to national autonomy, the real teeth of this matter is the international health regulations. And that's where you're gonna get a lot of your uh, uh, digital health certificates and surveillances of individuals, perhaps financial penalties, social credit scores based on the Chinese model. So uh, there's a lot to take in here, but the, the international health regs have, again, have a life of their own. That's where a lot of the problems might come in, impinging on medical choice, impinging on national sovereignty, because those two things go hand in hand. And therefore, the treaty um, while some believe the treaty is needed to go to the next level on pandemic preparedness and response, the treaty might serve as window dressing to sort of obscure the international health regs, again, where the uh, real health tyranny would reside. And um, there's another slide. Maybe we'll go well, on no, one more here. No, before we do that, before we do that, Mark, I just want... Yeah, just one second, Mark, before we do that, I just want to put this one back on screen for a second, because it seems to me that if we're if we're wondering how how this is being developed and, and whether governments are actually engaged on this or what, what their intentions are, we need to look sometimes at domestic legislation. So just look at that sentence there that says, uh, there is also the aim of, and so this is talking about digital information and data protection, there's also the aim of interoperability, which means that data systems should, wherever possible, be compatible and have capacity for seamless exchange across different technological platforms. Now, of course, at the moment right. in the UK, uh, there's already data protection legislation in there, which uh, is quite restrictive uh, about how data is shared and so on. Um, but there's new legislation coming in. Uh, the, the bill hasn't even been formally announced as far as I know just yet, but there's new data protection legislation coming in, which will enable this kind of uh, data exchange across different technological platforms. It'll enable data exchange across borders. Uh, and And so, when we're looking at, at how, what the impact of these types of international treaties that we haven't actually signed up to the latest IHR yet, uh, but we've, we're already developing the domestic legislation which would enable some of this stuff. So, so I think it's important that we, we 
put those two things together and recognize that, that governments are already planning for this, no matter what uh, status it's at at the moment. Yeah, I would also add, Mike, that the, the treaty is in its earliest stages. It, you know, it's very, it's very early in its development. So those that are saying there's no threat to sovereignty through the treaty, I would say to them, wait and see. Meanwhile, the international health regs, again, kind of have a life of their own. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, they're actually seen by some as a treaty unto itself, the international health regulations. Anyway, another slide here, countering misinformation and disinformation is, is included here in the international health regulations. That's what this is from and the previous item. It says in here a balance is needed between uh, getting more accurate scientific information on the one hand and upholding free speech and uh, free press on the other, which to me can be read different ways. It's kind of subjective, but if you want to balance between the two, that means free press and free speech could be easily compromised or, or, or could be made very negotiable. And we all just love to hear that human rights are being made negotiable, which again would be typical of UN instruments. Now this is from Wikipedia. Notice here what it says in the sentence that I underlined, the international health regulations is the only international legal treaty, there's that word, with the responsibility of empowering the WHO to act as the main global surveillance system. So here the IHR regs are being called a treaty unto themselves. If that's true, the World Pandemic Treaty being developed along with the uh, IHR regs being updated are kind of like two treaties going hand in hand. Again, one could be much more of a direct threat to human rights. The other could sort of serve as window dressing. And then, however, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States, the international health regs uh, are a legally binding agreement of 196 countries to build the capacity to detect and report potential public health emergencies worldwide. And I made a very important footnote on this. The NAFTA agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was approved by the U.S. Senate 30 years ago, November 1993, with only a simple majority. And it, it passed 61 to 38. And then Senator Biden, by the way, voted yes on that. So the NAFTA treaty is what it should have been called. But just by calling it an agreement, they didn't need the constitutionally required uh, U.S. Senate supermajority to pass it. They only needed a simple majority. So it's actually very important whether the IHR regs are regarded as a treaty unto themselves in some way or just an agreement. These words matter. They, they matter a great deal. And we were saddled in the U.S. almost 20 years with NAFTA, and it decimated the economy. Had it been... Uh, put forth as a treaty, which it deservedly should have been, it probably wouldn't have passed the Senate, and the U.S. wouldn't have been uh, economically ravaged by NAFTA, which Trump eventually replaced, by the way, about three or four years ago. Anyway, James Roguski, the Los Angeles-based World Health Organization analyst, he shared this with me. Um, subsequent to the adoption of the amendments during the 75th World Health Assembly, no signature by any presidents or prime ministers and no approval by the Senate, Congress, or any parliament was needed in order to ratify the amendments to the international health re regulations. So what he's saying is there's really been no precedent on those regs for government, parliaments, Congress, senators, et cetera, to even be involved in signing off on these things. So again, this suggests a very much a dilution of or a direct threat against sovereignty. 
and uh, words are very important. And lastly on this, um, I contacted Senator Ron Johnson's office. He's a pretty notable senator out of Wisconsin, and he sees what's going on here. The headline, Senator Johnson leads colleagues in effort to protect American sovereignty against the WHO. This is pretty recent, February 17th. And we'll get into the next page, the last slide on this presentation. And it explains a little bit here. The first paragraph, this legislation would require any convention or agreement, get the words, resulting from the work of the WHO's intergovernmental negotiating body, which is working on the treaty. Uh, it, it would require that this uh, uh, agreement be deemed a treaty or defined as a treaty, requiring the advice and consent of a supermajority of the Senate that supermajority that should have been there for NAFTA, but wasn't. Uh, after the Biden administration's failed COVID-19 response and the WHO's mismanagement of the pandemic, some of that's a little questionable, Americans remain skeptical of continuing infringements on personal liberties and freedoms. Uh, moving down, the WHO, along with our federal health agencies, failed miserably in their response to COVID-19. This failure should not be rewarded with a new international treaty that would increase the WHO's power at the expense of American sovereignty, quote, unquote. I don't know that the, I would just comment real briefly, I don't know that the WHO failed in its response to COVID-19. I would argue that it responded exactly the way it wanted to, and it was just uh, very tyrannical and very questionable, and uh, people are pushing back against it. But anyway, I'll just make a quick note that I called Senator Johnson's office on Friday morning I was hoping to get a response in time for today's uh, UK column show. What the question I asked is, is Senator Johnson aware that the IHR regs, uh, although they may have some influence on the uh, content of the pandemic treaty, is he aware that those regulations are a standalone item and could also constitute a threat to medical choice and sovereignty? And his assistant that I spoke to wasn't sure so I'm going to find out in time for next week whether the senator is going to take both things into account, the regs as well as the treaty, and defining it indeed as a treaty and not something else so the Senate would get its full consent. So there you go. That That's a lot of the issues. And that's my rebuttal to the uh, well-intentioned critics of the recent uh, broadcast UK column has made. I think it pretty much lays, the, lays to rest these claims that there's no threat to sovereignty. Uh, it's a little bit more of an involved and circuitous process, but in, in, in the final analysis, there definitely are threats and questions regarding sovereignty and medical choice, and it requires very strong vigilance. Yeah. So, Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Alex. Well, just to respond directly and to amplify what Mark has said, uh, Senator Ron Johnson is very much going to have to be aware of this. We've talked in recent weeks on UK Column News uh, about the trick working the other way. That is that something which isn't an instrument of international law being dressed up as if it were. Often you will hear words such as compact or framework, uh, where governments know that they cannot get the ratification through their parliaments or Congress. Now Mark has presented us with evidence um, that things work the other way as well, that things which executive branches of government, because those are the branches that sign treaties, they will regard them as a treaty. And uh, the footnote four to that Wikipedia article Mark just showed gives the academic reference in question. It was a book edited by Yaud, Y-O-U-D-E, uh, which said in 2010, the book was about the international health regulations, said it's a treaty twice in one chapter. 
right? That is now being presented to local, uh, to national courts and parliaments as it's not a treaty, it's regulations. This is bureaucratic level, right? But the uh, the clever and necessary thing that Senator Johnson is doing, more power to his elbow, uh, is he's saying we in Congress must decide whether it is a treaty or not. If it looks and smells and waddles like a treaty and quacks like one, it probably is a treaty and you're going to need your 67 votes on the floor of the Senate in the case of the United States. So excellent, really. But bear in mind that the only instruments of international law in descending hierarchical order are convention, treaty, accord and protocol. Anything that is not one of those four is not uh, an instrument of international law. Now, in various other uh, anti-globalist states in what's often called the heartland of the USA uh, and moves are afoot uh, to block uh, health tyranny in other ways as well. So in the northwestern US, we've got uh, Idaho, the Republican Party in that state on the floor of the state legislature, the state house, is proposing to make it a crime to administer a COVID jab. This was picked up by Joel Smalley in his excellent Substack blog. Uh, that a Republican Senator Tammy Nichols and House Representative Judy Boyle introduced a bill to Idaho's health, House Health and Welfare Committee, so it will get to the floor of the House in due time in that state, seeking to charge mRNA vaccine administrators with misdemeanors. That's the lower category of crimes, but it is criminal law. Right at the other end of the US in the southeast, you've got the Republican Party in Mississippi uh, having uh, a runoff now for who is going to run for governor on the Republican Party's ticket. At the moment, Dr. John Witcher uh, is one of the contenders against the incumbent governor, Tate Reeves, in the primaries there. And uh, Dr. Witcher's platform uh, is against the vaccine mandate at governor level. So there's the executive and the legislature at state level, uh, seeing that they can do that, that things can be done against globalist tyranny. Back to the Idaho uh, uh, state uh, legislature, House Bill 154, it's currently in the House uh, as of a, a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago, uh, has this wording. Uh, it's been uh, sent to the, the committee before it goes to full uh, uh, plenary session. Um, and the wording of that is that uh, notwithstanding any other provision of law, an important wording there, so you can't claim, well, it was public health, a person may not provide or administer a vaccine developed using mRNA technology for an individual or any other mammal in this state. A violation is a misdemeanor. There's nothing to prevent uh, other countries and other US states following. Mark, I see that you want to come in on this. Yeah, I, I touched on some of this last week. The state of Georgia is also uh, making it so uh, COVID jabs won't be required for anything to go to school, to keep your medical license, et cetera, et cetera. So, there's a lot of pushback, and this is exactly the kind of localized or state-level pushback well, that yeah. a WHO treaty and or the health regs would swallow up and try and, 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 try and uh, dampen or get rid of. This is exactly the kind of thing the WHO fears. And I'll just mention briefly that had the NAFTA Accord been called the treaty that it really was, uh, at a 61 to 38 vote, it would not have passed. A supermajority would have required 67 votes. So just substituting the word agreement for the word treaty gave us NAFTA, and had it been the word treaty, it would not have passed. So there you go. Very important stuff. Now, let's move just one state north, north from Mississippi and Georgia to Tennessee, the volunteer state. Uh, Blaze Media has picked up on this, uh, that on the, uh, at the, the state level there in the House, a legislator has introduced what Horowitz, the commentator at Blaze, calls the single most important bill for the life of our constitution. This is a federal level comment because this is replicable in the other 
49 states. So Rep uh, Representative Bud Hulsey, a Republican in Tennessee, who we focused on before at UK Column for his sterling efforts, has again introduced a House bill. And if you're thinking in other countries, we don't have states and, uh, and, uh, and legislatures. Well, you do. They're just called other things. They're called county councils. And of course, the lawyers will say county councils can't legislate. But you'll find out more that more is possible than you might think, right down to bylaw level in your own country. Uh, Hulsey's bill uh, would... Uh, enable states to interpose themselves to nullify laws when they believe the government at the federal level is clearly wrong, not least because it may have signed treaties under false names uh, with foreign uh, organizations. What are the remedies? Either the governor of the state may issue an executive order declaring the federal policy void, or anyone in the state house uh, can trigger a debate in the, on the floor and vote to nullify the policy, or a court, that's the, all three branches now, may declare the policy unconstitutional if it arises during uh, a case. And any combination of 10 local governing authorities, so this is down to the level of district councils in other countries, may petition through the representatives or the executives for a nullification uh, vote in the legislature. And any group, this is Swiss style, of 2,000 Tennessee registered voters may submit a similar petition. Once such a bill passes, uh, or such a policy is implemented by the governor, it would be unlawful for any state or local official to assist or fund the policy in any way. They cannot say the regulations tell me to. Um, so this, this law would have no statute of limitations. It could go back in time and forward in time, or particularly forward in time, meaning that you could have a vote on any law, regardless of when it was passed. Um, this has been picked up by one of the many excellent Substack blockers at the moment, Catherine Watt, who writes Bailiwick News, and uh, she's quoted the relevant text, sections six and seven, a very important section seven there. This is the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. Again, the proper manner of resistance is a state action of nullification of the federal action. This is English legal doctrine for those who think this all sounds very American. Uh, it applies in Australia, New Zealand, wherever you have a unit, unitary state that says we don't do that stuff anymore. Yes, we do have that doctrine. Nullification is then defined that uh, if you are acting as a government ultra vires beyond your powers, the state will say, we're not funding that. Uh, people in our uniform will not enforce it. Uh, we'll punish you for it. It's null and void in this state. Uh, and that anyone offer, uh, operating under the authority of the state constitution in Tennessee uh, must not assist any enforcement of the federal or global action. Uh, the same blog picked up that the same thing is happening in Canada, where the provinces are fighting back, led by Alberta, which in terms of polling is way out in the lead for wanting secession from the federal level of Canada. Alberta has actually passed a law, this is back just before New Year, rejecting federal sovereignty. Sovereignty of the Canadian government in Ottawa has now actually been repudiated by enacted law and acknowledged by royal assent as such in one of the provinces. Uh, people can freeze that to read the whole of this. It's been picked up by the mainstream media as well, by The Guardian. Um, it's a reset of the relationship with the federal government of Trudeau, says uh, the Premier, Danielle Smith. Our key quote here, this is in tyrannized Canada. The, 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 the Premier of Alberta says, it's not like Ottawa, the federal capital, is a national government. Canada is not a government. Legal uh, authorities around the world might think, well, uh, the Canadian government's bound itself to this and that. But no, back home, um, Ottawa is not. The way that Canada works, and it's it formalized this as recently as the 1980s, is that we are a federation of sovereign independent jurisdictions, as are the 50 US states. 
they are one of those signatories to the constitution and the rest, the provinces, are co-signatories. They brought into light being the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada just 40 years ago. And therefore, the states and, and provinces in both uh, countries in North America are sovereign within their own area of jurisdiction, a reassertion of classical doctrine, really. And uh, just one more piece on Canada here that, uh, oh yes, we'll, we'll, we'll show this as well, that royal assent was given uh, through the person of the governor general. Uh, only in New Zealand is royal assent personal, but it shows that uh, King Charles, who is King of Canada, of course, did not uh, object to this. He's, he's recognised it. Alberta is sovereign within United Canada. That's the name of the act that's been enacted. Reclaim the Net is reporting uh, that Justin Trudeau uh, has been uh, repudiated by all 12 of the state premiers uh, on this point. Uh, they will not be sharing citizens' medical data uh, with the federal government. Uh, once again, a direct knock at the IHR. Uh, and other uh, excrescences of the WHO system. Even the, the most tyrannically minded like Quebec uh, have signed this joint letter saying they will not be sharing healthcare data. Uh, with all this in mind, people in Britain or other countries that have a Westminster parliamentary system might be thinking, where do we begin with such campaigns? And here, Will Keat and others who run commonlawconstitution.org have come up with the goods again. They have written the piece, Urgent When Writing to Your MP, and here is some crucial wording to keep in mind when writing to your MP on any issue. Remind them that they're a public servant. Why? Because they took an oath of office to the, the sovereign and therefore to the constitution. What is that oath? We're, we're back around the, uh, the issues of the coronation oath here, but it applies to the representatives uh, and legislators too. The oath is to the crown or sovereign, the king or queen. They are the representation of the rule of law under the constitution. The king has taken a promise, the current one will take a promise on the 6th of May, to govern according to our laws and customs, which is common law, which means the rule of law, classically understood. This means maintaining the people's sovereignty. You have to spell this out to your member of parliament when they think that they can do what on earth they like. Therefore, tell your MP, politely and firmly, that they are not free to support the introduction of any legislation that infringes upon the liberty of the people. Why not? They would be running the risk of committing a crime under the constitution. Write to them and say you might well be committing misconduct in public office, which, of course, the Law Commission is now trying to re remove uh, by uh, replacing it with statute law. But it is a common law offence. I think one of you might want to come in at this point. No, no, just uh, need to say that we are absolutely out of time, Alex. So so if, if you finish this section off and then then or if, if you have finished, then we need to end, really. And we have more material for extra time. But my immediate comment on that is that challenging is such an important thing to do uh, because very small things can have a very big effect and when enough people challenge uh, we start to see results and I think it's excellent William Keaty is uh, setting out the clarity here of what you need to ask and why but of course it's vital when you write to people it's done in your own hand it's your letter ideally not a pro forma so there we are Okay, Alex and uh, Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, well, I think we can see very clearly what is coming. We are now witnessing what is an overt attack on uh, our sovereignty, nation state, communities, families. It's becoming ever more clear. And of course, uh, well, okay, maybe the Telegraph has started uh, to ask some of the right questions. Um, but of course, enough people writing to the editor of The Telegraph to ask why he's not dealing with key issues such as vaccine damage, for example, could also have a big effect with that newspaper. But at least we can see what we're up against now. 
Whereas if we go back 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, the enemy was largely hidden. It was very difficult to see it. Now it's, it's becoming visible. So we'll be back in a couple of minutes if you're a UK column member for some extra. Yes, and it will be a packed extra. So do join us. We will see you then. Thank bye -bye. you. Bye bye.